you please open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24? Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35, we're on the road to Emmaus. It's on page 1051 in the Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 24, starting in, starting in verse 13. Hear now the word of the living God. Please take heed. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each, other, with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some woman of our company amazed us, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who, had, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with, the, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them and the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, as Pastor John prayed, we do ask that we would see you and that we would recognize 
and see the face of Jesus Christ even now, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see Christ. Dear Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Julius, Julian Barnes, uh, he's an agnostic English writer. And at the age of 62, he wrote a book called Nothing to Be Frightened Of. And he tried to address his fear of death in this book. And this agnostic, he wrote on the very first sentence of the book, um, with heartbreaking honesty, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. It's as if he, cognitively he knew that in his mind God didn't exist. That's what he believed in his mind, but in his heart he still had this desire for God's presence. He still felt the absence of God. And as Christians, we struggle with something very similar, except we don't say, I don't believe in God. We say, I do believe in God, but I still miss him. And we can cognitively assert that God exists, that the risen Lord is alive, and yet we still feel he is absent. We can still feel like he is not present with us. And my question is, why is that? Well, I think Luke here, I think he's addressing that same question. He want, he's answering the question of how post-resurrection believers, post-resurrection believers, so even us today as Christians who do not have the privilege of being with Christ physically, Luke is trying to establish how we today can encounter the presence of the risen Lord, even though we cannot see him physically. So if you look real quick in verses 13 to 14, it's that very day. So the same day the woman discovered the empty tomb, two of them, so two of the disciples who did not believe, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So all the news coverage, all the headlines, all the Twitter feeds were about this Jesus Christ who was crucified. And then in verse 15, here is where the dramatic irony begins. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So the very one that they were talking about came up to them and, and was walking with them. So they had the advantage of seeing Christ with their own two eyes. But then what does it say in verse 16? Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So from verse 16 to verse 31. Verse 16 reads, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now verse 31, what does it say? Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So this whole narrative is tracking the progression of these disciples who had a lack of recognition and then they gathered full recognition. And the whole point of this dramatic irony is to show us that they went from blindness to sight 
precisely not, not because they saw him visibly with their own eyes. They recognized Christ in a different way other than optical vision. And that means even though Christ is no longer spatially localized on earth, accessible to human eyes, we too still can recognize that the risen Lord is present with us. That's what Luke is trying to do, but we do it in a different way than seeing him visually. So this is why this happens on the road to Emmaus, seven miles away from Jerusalem. What's so significant about Emmaus? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing is really significant about Emmaus. What's significant is that it's not in Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem is mentioned here more than Emmaus. The fact is, it's not in the religious center where they expect God's presence to be. This is happening out there, as it were. So that if you're seven miles away from this religious center, or if you're 6,193 miles away in northwest Indiana, we can still have confidence that we walk in the presence of the risen Lord. So assurance of Christ's presence is not established for us by seeing him visually. It's not how it's done. And the question is, where then is it established? And Luke is showing us that assurance of Christ's presence is established for post-resurrection believers like you and I, not in sight, but we may have confidence in in a different way of seeing Christ, not with vision. So then the question is, If we miss the Lord, if we feel the absence of Christ's presence, where do we meet him? Where is this divine rendezvous? What are the GPS locations? Where has Christ promised to meet us? And if you look at verse 35 here, the last verse the disciples singled out two places where Jesus met them. It says, Then they told what had happened on the road. So that's the first point. On the road, the interpretation of Scripture. And then the second thing, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And that's the second point. So let's look at this first point. On the road in the interpretation of Scripture, starting in verse 19. And he said to them, that is Jesus, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers, rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So Jesus' crucifixion deflated their hope. Jesus' suffering seemed to be incompatible with their expectations of salvation. 
But then you keep going, added to this misconception of the Messiah in verse 22 to 24 is this puzzling fact of the empty tomb. So look at that, verses 22 to 24. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So notice that the issue here is not the fact of the empty tomb. The issue is verse 23, they didn't know where his body went. And then verse 24, him they did not see. So his body they couldn't see. So the body of Jesus Christ, the one decisive piece of empirical evidence that kept them from believing, is now standing right in front of them. But notice, this is what I want you to notice. How does Jesus reveal himself? How does he do it? Does he transfigure himself in a bright array of luminescent light? Does he cause the the ground underneath to quake and a a tempest to arise? Does he say with the, the booming voice of a thousand archangels, I am Jesus. How does Jesus reveal himself? The most stunning thing in this passage is that rather than some spectacular revelation, what does Jesus do? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He gives a Bible study. He exposits the word. He interprets scripture. And specifically, we see that it's a Christ-centered interpretation. All of scripture is centered on Christ. If you see in verse 25, all that the prophets have spoken, verse 27, beginning with Moses, and all the prophets. So Christ here is the golden key that unlocks all of scripture. Christ is the promised seed of the woman meant to crush the head of Satan. Christ is the bronze serpent raised for our healing. Christ is the Passover lamb, the son of man, the suffering servant. From Genesis to Malachi, it all centers on Christ. And then secondly, it's a a gospel-focused interpretation. If you look at verse 26, Jesus says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Well, the implied answer there is yes. It was necessary. The problem with the disciples was that they could not make a connection between Jesus' role as a mighty prophet and his violent death. These two things seemed incompatible. Really, they misunderstood Jesus' true identity as the suffering Messiah. That his mission was to give his life for us. They misunderstood the nature of the gospel. But this is what I want you to understand. It's, notice that 
Luke doesn't really record Jesus' interpretive words, meaning he doesn't actually show us the contents of Jesus' Bible study. We don't really hear it. So why does, why does Luke do that? Why does he almost put us on edge? We want to hear what Jesus is saying, but he's not telling us. Why does Luke do that? It's because the point here is not so much the contents of Jesus' scripture interpretation. The point is the act of Jesus interpreting scripture. Because it's in the act of this Christ-centered, gospel-focused interpretation of scripture that Jesus is recognized. If you notice... In verse 32, they said that Jesus opened to us scriptures. That's a strange verb to use to say interpreting scriptures. He opened to us scriptures. Why the word opened? Because Luke is drawing a connection to verse 31. What does it say in verse 31? It says, when their eyes were opened. So Luke here is drawing this connection to the opening of scriptures and the opening of their eyes. Their eyes were opened to see the presence of Christ as the scriptures were being opened. So this is really why even even after they recognized Jesus, what astonished the disciples was it Jesus' resurrection appearance or a supernatural, supernatural disappearance? Look at verse 32. The first thing the disciples say to each other is, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So their hearts were burning, okay? Their hearts were burning. They had this inward warmth of the presence of Jesus Christ, specifically while he opened to them the scriptures. Meaning they felt the presence of the risen Lord not because they saw him with their own eyes. They felt the presence of the risen Lord because they heard the faithful interpretation of scripture. In other words, we see the risen Lord, our hearts burn in the presence of Jesus Christ, not by sight. But when we gather the kindling of faithful exposition of Scripture, and we pour the gasoline of faith, and the Holy Spirit ignites it, that's how we feel the warmth of Christ's presence. It's not by seeing him visually. The risen Lord is present in the faithful ministry of the word. The blazing fire called the presence of God is felt in the ministry of the word. That's astounding. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, he called faithful preaching logic on fire. John Wesley, the great revival preacher of the 1700s, when he described his conversion at a prayer meeting in London, he said it occurred while someone was reading from Luther's preface to the epistle to Romans, to the Romans. So he's hearing Luther's exposition of scripture. And about 8.45 p.m., this is what Wesley wrote. He said, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Blaise Pascal, the French Christian theologian and apologist of the 1600s, he wrote on a piece of fabric that was sewed onto the interior of his coat. And whenever he, had, he got a new coat, he would take it out and put it in the new coat. And this piece of fabric wasn't discovered until he died. And on this piece of fabric, he wrote his conversion. And I read this. 1654, Monday, 23 November, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. So then, if you desire, then, the fire of Emmaus, if you desire your hearts to be blazing in the presence of the Lord, where, he, where is he found? As Pascal said, he is found only in the gospel. He is found only when he is taught in the gospel. Christ is saying, then, meet me in the scriptures. Meet me in the interpretation of the scriptures. Don't find me in the whirlwind or the tempest or in the extraordinary. He says, find me in the ordinary, faithful ministry of the word. The risen Lord is present in the interpretation of scripture. So then secondly, we move on uh, to point two at the table in the breaking of bread. So verses 28 to 30, follow along with me here. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now pay close attention to verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. So notice the, the meticulous detail Luke gives in verse 30. Why would Luke list these actions if there was nothing with special significance attached to it? Why spend four verbs in verse 30? He took, he blessed, he broke, 
he gave. Why, why spend four verbs to describe a simple meal? Well, when was the last time Jesus had a meal? Chapter 22. And what happened in chapter 22? Christ was instituting the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 22, verse 19, we read four verbs. He took bread. That's the first one. Second, and when he had given thanks. Third, he broke it. And fourth, and gave it to them. So Luke is stitching here the breaking of bread with the Emmaus disciples with the Lord's Supper. So then why was it that the Lord's Supper triggered in their minds that, Jesus, that this is Jesus Christ? Why the Lord's Supper out of all things? Was it because they saw like a familiar hand gesture of Jesus Christ? Was it because of some voice inflection? Did they see the pierced hands when, they, when he gave them the bread? Why the Lord's Supper of all things? Well, remember earlier in verses 23 to 24, the empty tomb. What was the problem with the disciples? What piece of evidence was missing? They were bothered because they didn't see Jesus' body. His body wasn't there. They didn't see his body. And so now here, Jesus Christ performing the same actions of the Lord's Supper. And what does Jesus do right after he gives the disciples the bread and the Lord's Supper? What does Jesus do? He says something, doesn't he? And what does Jesus say in the Lord's Supper? After he breaks the bread and gives it, he says, This is my body. So the body missing from the tomb, they realize, is standing right in front of them, sitting right in front of them. And their eyes are opened. Jesus Christ, his very own body, has risen from the grave. And then strangely, Jesus vanishes from their sight, right? In verse 31, from their sight. They recognize him, they see him, and then Jesus decides to disappear. Now that's a, that's a strange thing too. Why does Jesus decide to disappear right when they recognize him? Christ is saying, even when you do not see me, I will still be present with you in the breaking of bread, in the Lord's Supper, that whenever we participate in the Lord's Supper, that through faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ brings us up to his very own presence. We, are, we enter into the very presence of the resurrected and ascended Christ in the Lord's Supper. It's not just a bare memorial. It's not some antiquarian act. It's not just this thing that we do, this bare ritual. The Lord's Supper is us 
entering into the very presence of the risen Lord, Christ's very own appointed means whereby we encounter the risen Lord. Next week we have the Lord's Supper. I, I wish we had it today, but we don't have it today. We have it next week, which is very exciting. But the idea here, the idea here is that Luke is saying the risen Lord continues to be present though unseen. And he's saying he's present specifically in this designated location and the interpretation of Scripture and in the Lord's Supper. To put it briefly, Jesus Christ is spiritually present in word and sacraments. Jesus Christ is spiritually present in words, word and sacraments, which is something accessible to us today. Even though we don't walk with the earthly Christ, And maybe you're thinking, word and sacraments? That's all? That's so dull. It's so boring. It's un- that's uninteresting. Where's this five-step secret to having an, an extraordinary experience with the risen Lord? Why just give me this stuff about word and sacraments? And we succumb to this culture of sensationalism, our clickbait culture, where we're so drawn to celebrities or large charismatic personalities, where everything that, that, is, that is newsworthy must be unprecedented. And we search for Christ. We search for Christ's presence in theatrical spectacles, And we're out here, and it's as if we're saying, Christ, come to us. Look at our impressive methods, Christ. We have the new fads and fashions, but it's not in the glitz and glamour, is it? It's not in the manufacturing of extraordinary spiritual experiences. We say, Christ, come over here, when all the while, Christ is in the word and sacrament saying, come to me. I'm not over there. I'm over here. Come to me in the words and sacraments, and in, in my words, my scripture. Come to me. We all want this Damascus Road experience when Christ calls us to the Emmaus Road. And perhaps more tragic than refusing to meet Christ where he promised to be is to be in the very presence of Christ in word and sacraments, to have the privilege to be in the presence of Christ in the interpretation of Scripture and in the Lord's Supper, and to be like the disciples. And fail to recognize him. The irony continues today. We either seek Christ 
in his presence where he said he would not be. And we are saddened when he is absent. Or we sit in the very presence of Christ where he said he would be. And we fail to recognize him. Well, let us be a people that seeks Christ in his presence in the ordinary means of grace, in word and in sacraments. And with faith, with belief, let us recognize that he is truly with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would remove the scales from our eyes. Help us to see that Christ is present with us right now. Help us, be, help us to be eager to hear your word. Help us to be eager to commune with you in the Lord's Supper. Oh God, I pray that these things would become priorities in our lives that we would not be pulled away by so many other things, Lord. Christ, you have, to you have told us where to meet you. You've told us to meet you in the word and in the sacraments. So I pray, dear Lord, that this is where we go. And not just that, Lord, that, that we would really see you here. So give us eyes now, Lord, to see. In Jesus' name, amen.